Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 86. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. How's your uh, week been, Fooliman? Pretty good. Actually, no, I'm lying. I'm just trying to fulfill the social contract by always answering good to that question. I've been sick. I feel like garbage. Also, I missed two of the Leaf games for social occasions. So, you know, I uh, scouted the stat line a little bit this week. Mm-hmm. Being sick that, and having to like, still interact with people is awful. Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. My, my life's boring. Um, but yeah, being sick and having to interact with people sucks. It's the worst. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, whew. yeah. Uh, anyway, but as much as I'm a hero, we're not here to hear about my triumphant overcoming of this frankly irritating cold in order to talk to humans. We're here to talk about the Leafs. Yeah. And And that's a more fun topic. It is. The Leafs have also come down with a sickness. And the sickness is called winning, baby. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Um, Yeah, this was a good Uh, week if you're you're a Leafs fan. Uh, They won three games. They beat the Buffalo Sabres, who suck. They beat the New York Rangers, who suck. And Mm -hmm. they beat the Detroit Red Wings, who suck. Um, Granted, the Rangers, or sorry, the Red Wings win was a little... Uh, dicey at some points. It relied on uh, some good goaltending from Michael Hutchinson, and I'm as shocked as you are. But, you know, <laughs> three wins from three is, you know, a good spot to be, obviously. Uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm being a real, you know, Greg Millen by, by saying that. Yeah. And I think the biggest I, kind of takeaway from these wins is that the Leafs are put, have put, have kind of dug themselves out of the hole that they're in, and now they're just fighting on par with the three teams, Buffalo, Florida, Montreal, that we think they're going to fight for, fight with for the third Atlantic playoff spot. Yeah, we're now at the point where uh, we're ahead of Buffalo, and Buffalo does not have a game in hand. We're ahead of Montreal, but even if Montreal wins the one game in hand that they have, they'll still they'll still be behind us on the tiebreaker. Uh, Florida is one point back with two games in hand. Tampa is four points back with three games in hand. Not to get too hung up on the numbers because we're too far out, you know, to dice it down to one game here, one game there. But, like, everyone's pretty much in the hunt at this point. And now it's just a question of who plays the best for the last 45 games of the season or so. Yep, exactly. So, I mean, I think by points percentage right now, we're probably the fourth in the Atlantic behind Boston and the Florida teams. But, you know... Mm -hmm. A win here and a loss there you know it changes the picture dramatically the the, the broader point is we're back um we're not we're not fighting uphill anymore we're, we're on even footing with the rest of the teams and as you said it's who plays the best over the next 45 games or rather who who accrues the most points over the next 45 games which is uh, not the same thing of course as we all know yeah i know if you rack up a lot of otls and stuff uh, it's actually we're ahead of tampon points percentage right now oh really oh yeah i guess yeah four and three. yeah that's a, that's okay um, so we're, we're by a playoff spot in a playoff spot by merit right now. Yeah. Which is, Ooh. you know, something that you haven't really been able to say since two weeks into October, give or take. Um, yeah, pretty much. Which is encouraging. Also Tampa, you know, Tampa feels like the elephant in the room or like the serial killer behind the door maybe is a better metaphor. <laughs> like I expected any moment they're going to pop out and say, okay, just kidding. We're going to destroy everybody. And their numbers in the last month or so are quite good at 5v5. But their goaltending hasn't quite been there. Yeah, they've been and really let down scuffling. by their, yeah, by by their goaltending. Yeah. And, you know, certainly we know the feeling. But 
now we're in a question of like, okay, if that doesn't resolve itself, and I still kind of think like, I'm still expecting Tampa to right the ship, but it's not inconceivable to me that they won't, you know? Like that this flaw will actually hold them back and bring them to a level where the Leafs can possibly finish ahead of them, you know? Which is a relief because we've been talking about it as if Tampa locks up second place. And just based on team ability, I still instinctively assume that. But, you know, after a certain point, it's like, okay, they haven't built up a margin there yet. Maybe that's not guaranteed. So that's something to keep an eye on from, from where we're sitting. But yeah, yeah absolutely. by and large, pretty encouraging. Yeah, I mean, I, look, the NHL is a league where, you know, any any small win streak, you know, suddenly just ratchets up your, your chances of doing anything, right? Like, it, it's, mm-hmm. hockey's a random sport. It's tough to win even four or five games in a row, mm-hmm. right? So the fact that the Leafs are on a four-game win streak um, helps a lot. And then if, if you look at kind of their, their schedule going forward, this was the area that they kind of had to capitalize on. So they have they have the next gen game against the Hurricanes tomorrow at two PM, which will be tough. Mm-hmm. And then after that, they have another four games that against teams that they should be the favorites against, right? Devils, Rangers, Wild, Jets. Yeah, uh, no back. The Jets are doing well in terms of the standings this year, which is kind of remarkable, but they're. <laughs> I'm not sure how they're really doing it because they don't look like they're that good and their defense is like, you know, unicorn hair and dreams at this point. Right. It's goaltending, right? From I haven't checked in on yeah. them recently, but they're basically just Hellebuck's kicking ass. Yeah, and that'll do you. But, you know, you never know how long that's going to persist. So, yeah, like, the Leafs need to take care of business and they need to keep winning. Like, they just need to, you know... <laughs> I know that I'm getting down to like a truism here, but it's like just play like a good team and beat the teams you should beat, and we're in a pretty decent position. And yeah. to their credit, they've been doing that. So yeah, and it, it helps. It helps that you know even in the game where they didn't play very well this week, because I think they legitimately played quite well against Buffalo, quite well against the Rangers. I mean, I guess I'll I'll, I'll rephrase quite well as in they were more likely to win the game against the Rangers by a significant amount. It was a sloppy game um Mm -hmm. both teams did not really play great defense in my opinion but the Leafs you know capitalized on the Rangers defense more than the Rangers capitalized on the Leafs defense not just in terms of goals but in terms of chances the Red Wings game was yeah a bit um a bit more hairy as I kind of alluded to off the jump there were a lot of defensive breakdowns from from the Leafs where like Hutchinson had to make more saves than I'm comfortable with uh where he just a breakaway arose out of nothing because players were out of position or just lazy tracking back or unaware mm-hmm. tracking back as opposed to lazy uh, take your pick um but yeah it was that was that was concerning we talk about you know we've talked certainly when in the first part of the season about the second half of a back-to-back killing the Leafs not just from a goaltending perspective but in terms of how they played, where they basically just rolled over and died and mm-hmm. you know it's worth emphasizing that playing um a rested team when you are on the second night of a back-to-back is absolutely a, a disadvantage that being said, people who have studied it have come to, when, when they estimate the impact of it, they're like, yeah, it's essentially the same as home ice advantage, right? Mm-hmm. If you're arrested, if you're a retired team facing a rested team, even if you're at home, it's kind of like you're playing on the road and that you probably won't be as successful in generating shots and chances and whatnot. 
but that's not an enormous disadvantage, right? Like, road teams win games all the time, and road teams outplay home teams all the time. So it, you know, it, it's fucking Detroit. Yeah, it's so, <laughs> so it's like a little, it's a little, you know, we, we can't we can't make this we can't keep using this excuse, right? Like the Leafs yeah. should be better than Detroit, even if Detroit is rested. Yeah, but that said, you know, it is one game, and in the macro perspective, I think there's a lot to be encouraged about here, even if we don't totally go off into the hagiography of Sheldon Keefe, which seems to be sort of what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Like, he's really being adored by Twitter that I can see, which is, you know, kind of a natural release after how pissed people were at Babcock. But also, I think he's doing a good job. Yeah. I think he's getting good results. And I think it's, you know, it's a tough combination task to come in in the midseason because you're simultaneously trying to plug the hole in the boat and steer the boat. You know, like, you have to... Um, you know, not have the season fall away from you, and then also kind of rapidly rebuild your idea of what the team is supposed to play like, you know, systemically in terms of culture and what have you. So, uh, you know, I think in 14 games, and, and again, we're still saying small sample size theater, but it's it's a growing body of work, and the Leafs won 10 games out of 14. If you're winning better than two-thirds of your games, that'll sure do you. Um, even expecting that they won't quite do that the rest of the way, I think that, you know, that's favorably impressive. Yes, and the numbers have been quite good as well, um, pretty much mm-hmm. in all areas. And we'll get into that more later, but I guess the first thing we wanted to discuss were some player-level trends, I suppose, that, that have kind of encouraged us. Um, and the first is essentially the stabilization of the defense core. Yes, and this is a, kind of a remarkable thing. But since November 20th, when uh, Keith came in, the Leafs now have three defense pairings, all of which have at least 55% expected goals. Three separate pairings. So Tyson Berry and Morgan Riley, uh, Jake Muzzin and Justin Hall, and then Travis Dermott and Cody Ceci. Now, that's not to say that everyone's kicking ass all the time, because not everyone is obviously always with that assigned partnership. But all of them have worked quite well, and that is encouraging. Now, Riley and Barry, I mean, you can guess this just from knowing what the two players are like, you know, like, go, 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 super offensive defensemen. They're used very offensively, as they should be. That's what they're for, especially if you put them together. But the fact that they've been effective, that they've been good, and that there hasn't really been a huge price to pay, expected goals-wise, in the other pairings, I think that's a lot to Keefe's credit. And I think if you do want to criticize Mike Babcock for specific lineup decisions, he had a very set view of what the correct defense pairings were. And I don't think he would have gotten close to trying that particular one because it's not his idea of balance with Morgan Riley, of like what kind of partner Morgan Riley should be playing with. So credit to him for having, you know, the willingness to try it and to employ it successfully. And then uh, Muzzin and Hall has been, I don't want to go all the way to saying it's been a revelation, but I think it's been better than any of us would have expected six months ago. Yeah, you know, like no, we, it, it I did not have that has. pegged as a hard minutes pairing by any stretch. Uh, I had Justin Hall pegged as a seventh defenseman. And so, you know, 
as we've said now, he's he's doing a good job for us. He's being uh, quite effective. I think that this, in conjunction with some other stuff with the forwards that we can talk about in a bit, just the fact that we have a permutation of this defense where, no, they're not great defensively uh, in sort of the conventional sense, but they're all effective, quite effective. That's really to Keefe's credit, and I give him a lot of a lot of props for that. Yeah, no, it, it, it's absolutely, it's been good. It's been very, very good. Um, very good thus far. What surprised me was that CC Dermott had such good numbers, and maybe this is just, uh, we've talked about this so many times with CC, where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, he's actually had okay numbers for most of the year. It, there was some time where it went kind of off the rails when he was with Riley. Mm-hmm. Um, and he definitely has looked better as of late. And this is this was the theory of Cody CC that we were talking about in the offseason. Okay, put him on the third pair. He's still not amazing, but he should be all right. But I, I, I haven't even liked really Dermot's game from what I've seen from him, just from the eye test. But the um, that pairing together has been solid enough, right? Uh, I think Dermot's yeah. top line numbers throughout the year are still quite unimpressive. But yeah, it, I mean, since Keith came in, and so I am using that cutoff a lot. Yeah, uh, which you should do with some caution. You know, the players still existed before Sheldon Keith came in to coach them, obviously. And right, and it doesn't make to be like, hesitant. Yeah, it's you don't want to throw away the data entirely from um, yeah. from before then, right? Because it's you can say that they were being coached worse or they're being coached in a way that led to less successful results and thus far that has been the case i don't think really there's a way around it but the players don't have zero responsibility zero percent responsibility for that as well Mm -hmm. and yeah so it is also worth noting that um dermot and cc play apart more than they play together even under keith and so i don't know if that's going to stabilize more going forward and Dermot's results are still okay after, and CC's are not. But you have to look at who CC's with and what he's being asked to do when he's not with Travis Dermot, which I suspect is a much less pleasant endeavor. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think that, um, by the way, my eye test doesn't like Travis Dermot either to the same extent. He seems to me like a guy with a lot of tools and talent who should be good but some of his decision making in his own zone is um cc-esque at its worst which is like the harshest thing i can say about him uh you know he's obviously i think a more talented defenseman than cc you know and he can do things that make you think oh this guy could be the real deal but i do find myself thinking okay this just gets him back to i'm on a good third pairing with travis dermott like he we know he can do that we know he can be part of a quite good third pairing. I'm not sure he can be part of a quite good second pairing, you know, but that's sort of a problem for another day at the moment. Right now, I'm pretty favorably impressed with all of how these defense pairs have shaken out. And this is the first time I've been able to say that in quite some time. Right. It, it, it's a bit like, I don't know, you have, it's like you have a bunch of, this is a tortured analogy, so bear with me on this, but you have like, a bunch of deformed Legos. And that that's the Leafs defense core, basically. Um, so it, it doesn't fit together, like, perfectly. But you manage to, like, figure out this iteration that it seems to be working. It's like everything's standing up. It looks all right. 
and you're like, okay, like this is really precarious. I don't want to fiddle around anymore with this because if I touch one thing, the whole thing might collapse. So it's <laughs> it, that's kind of how I feel. Where it's like we've stumbled yeah. onto this, you know, trio of pairs, and they're all doing reasonably well. There, there's, you know, make no mistake. This is this is not this is still not an elite defense core, right? There, there's still no. times where you get Riley Berry in their own zone, and it it's just a disaster, right? Um, no. and they sometimes just make the silliest decisions. I, I'm not remotely convinced. Uh, that Barry is, you know, what he is sold as to to many people. I, I still, even on this pairing now, I I think Riley's doing a lot more of the uh, puck pushing work because that's always been what Riley has been good at, and Barry has actually never shown kind of team level offensive driving. It's more been individual level offensive driving, which I think has a bit more questionable value. But anyways, that was a bit of an aside. Regardless of that, um, yeah, the, what we have now seems to be getting decent results and even if that's more down to the forwards more down to the coaching you know if you can mitigate what is commonly seen as the worst part of your team that's fine right it, it, we have this uh group of three pairings that is going all right now let's just hope they can stay that way right and and i guess yeah. one thing we need to mention and we should mention this off the top and we'll mention this again when we're we plan on talking a bit more about Keith versus Babcock and the numbers now that we have a bit more of a robust sample on Keith. the schedule has really opened up for Keith. it's been much kinder much much kinder yeah, and you know that's just reality. Obviously, that's not his fault. You got to yes. win the games in front of you, and he's mostly done that. But he was in a situation where you would expect, even if Babcock had stayed and had basically kept doing more or less what he was doing, you would still expect the results to have been better through this stretch than they were before it. Like, and that's true of most coaches that get fired. They get fired because everything is going wrong. Um, you know, often there's a PDO slump combined with player disengagement, combined with sinking metrics, combined with difficult scheduling, what have you. Um, you know, that's kind of a precondition to get fired is that the team is losing a disproportionate amount. So I think you could have expected a rebound there. Keefe's achievements probably are beyond the level of just dead cat bounce now. Or at least they look like it. Like this is more than just the ordinary rebound that I would have expected to happen anyway. Yes. So. And actually, um, yeah. it, it might be worth just kind of talking about the numbers on Keith versus Babcock now, and that'll lead into an, into another kind of theme from the last week or so that, that um, we should touch on. But yeah, if we, if, we, if we do that, if we look at the numbers from when Babcock was the coach compared to um, when Lee, when Keith is the coach, funnily enough, um, so I'll look at this in a couple ways. We're going to look mostly at five on five for now, and then we'll talk about special teams a bit later. It's a bit harder to read into special teams uh, from a numbers perspective because the samples are necessarily so much smaller, but we can still do that. Um, so bringing this up into offense and defense, if you look at uh, shot attempts per 60, the Leafs actually attempted more under Babcock than they uh, did under Keefe. And if you look at shot attempts per 60, the Leafs suffered less of them against Babcock than they have under Keefe as, as a rate. So by Corsi, essentially what I'm saying is, by Corsi, the Leafs' offense and defense was both um, uh, slightly better under Babcock. Actually, I just realized that's wrong. I forgot to score adjust. So let me let me uh, rephrase that. Once you score adjust, uh, Keefe comes out slightly ahead on both those counts. So basically, ignore what I said 30 seconds ago. By Corsi 4 percentage, <laughs> the Leafs are slightly better under Keefe than they were under Babcock. It's about 54.5% to 52.5%, which is, which is a notable um, increase. In, in effectiveness um, but it's not like an otherworldly increase where the real kind of quote-unquote magic has happened is with the Leafs generating shot quality at five on five 
So under Babcock, uh, the Leafs were at 2.14 expected goals per 60. That's not good. That's like kind of right in the middle of, uh, of the league. It's in that gigantic clump of teams who could, who could consider themselves average offensively. And this Leafs construction should not be average offensively. It should be, you know, league leading or close to it. Um, as it was the previous two years mm-hmm. under Mac Babcock, right? So th- this was kind of the source of much of our consternation to start the year. It's like, how did this team that is running effectively the same system, as far as we can tell, um, so much worse offensively this year versus last? Now, under Keefe, uh, they are at 2.84 uh, expected goals per 60, which is ridiculously good. And it's so good that you would perhaps expect it to come down later because the next highest in the league is the Vegas Golden Knights at 2.6. Then the next highest after that are the Hurricanes at 2.53, and then the Lightning at 2.47. So there is basically the yeah, gap we're, right we're, now. We're crushing the field. Yes, know, the gap right now between the Keefe Leafs and the second-place team, the Golden Knights, is the same as the gap between the Golden Knights and the 10th-place team, Ottawa Senators. Yeah, I mean, f- first of all, I mean, there's nothing really further for me to say about how weird it is that the Ottawa Senators are good at expected goals. Yeah. Um, I don't know what to make of that. That's fucking weird. Yeah. I, but we, two, like, the, I mean, that's just bizarre. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the the huge swing in shot quality is the most encouraging thing. Yes. As you said, there was no excuse for the Leafs to be bad offensively, and they were, if not bad, disappointing offensively they look a lot more like themselves i don't think keith has fixed the stuff that we thought was fundamentally wrong with this team he hasn't turned them into like a defensive you know fortress but he's gotten them back to the point where outscoring their problems is credible which is where they used to be under babcock uh, in their best days yeah you know no version of this team in the past four years has been good defensively. And, and, and they still they're still are. not, right? Like, e- e- even yeah. even with Keefe now, um, their defense has gotten very slightly better with Keefe as opposed to uh, as uh, how it was under Babcock by expected goals against. Um, but it's still mm-hmm. not particularly good. It's still below average. But yeah, as you said, they, they've, become, they've become kind of what we were expecting them to be and kind of uh, what they were at their best last year. Right, because mm-hmm. th- there was that period after Nidander returned. It was like December to February, roughly. <clears throat> Excuse me, where they were elite offense and okay defense, and com- that combined to make them among the league's best in terms of carrying play overall. Right, and that's kind of the recipe we're we're seeing now. Um, perhaps even just more so, but obviously it, it's a small sample size. It's only been a month. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's like that's always going to be the caveat. Everything could go to shit really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of teams can do anything for 15 games. But, you know, at the same time, that's what we've got under Sheldon Keefe. In terms of, uh, you know, I think there's been a lot of discussion now about what he's doing systemically. We've talked in previous podcasts about the, the third forward coming high. I don't think that, you know, it's a panacea. But I think that that's generally been an effective strategy. And I'm broadly encouraged by it, and I'm happy that it is continuing. Intuitively, I'm a little less encouraged by the defensive strategy, which seems to be, well, I mean, Ian Tullock at The Athletic called it parking the bus, which I know is a borrowed soccer term for just trying to protect the sort of lower, highest danger areas in the defensive zone. 
Um, it's almost as if Keefe came in and looked at the Leafs and was like, okay, this team sucks absolute ass defensively. Why don't we just try and almost take a battlefield medicine attitude towards this where it's like, we are going to stop the wound that is bleeding the most, which is the high danger passes through the slot. And we'll concede a lot of other stuff just to stop those passes. The Leafs are a little better in expected goals against now than right. So that's something. They haven't certainly gotten any worse. It does allow teams to sustain cycles against them rather interestingly in the same way that it allows them to sustain cycles against other teams. Ian talked about this a little bit where it's like the high F3 strategy is part of you get to reload at the blue line and then you kind of start attacking again without having to leave the zone and you sustain pressure. Teams are set up to do that against the Leafs by their own defensive strategy, which says, yeah, go ahead, take the top of the zone. That's an interesting kind of dichotomy there. And I can see a case for it. It seems to be working. And ultimately, you know, the proof is in the pudding as long as that continues. I wonder a little bit about whether it's a good idea to concede as much as we seem to do in the defensive zone. Like at some point you would like them to do more than just, you know, hang on for dear life and get in one specific passing line. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, um, in a sense, kind of the, the call that they're making is that we will do better at breaking down your packed defense and your set defense than you will do at breaking down our set defense. Um, and it's almost like betting on the forwards. It's saying, look, you, you can try and do the same thing to us, but you don't have Austin Matthews, William Nienander, Mitch Marner, and John Tavares. Mm-hmm. Which is a reasonable Which thing. Is, you know, that's a pretty coherent strategy. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, I think, get it. I think there's a, yeah, uh, you know, one of the things we said with Mike Babcock, and I think we, we stick by this, and something we should apply to basically all coaches is, you know, don't immediately assume they're dumbasses, right? I, I think there's a logical, mm-hmm. there's a logical thought process that explains the Leafs' um, decisions here for, for the most part. Um, one thing I want to add on to kind of what you said about for, uh, not trying to over-centralize on, on the large sample size. I think one reason I'm more inclined to believe this is legit is because if you had a prior on this team before the start of the year, it would be what we look like now from a numbers perspective. It would be elite offense, um, below average defense, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's not we're not doing something that is like completely foreign to these players. It's not completely foreign to even this team in previous years. We're, we're the same version of the Leafs, um, that we were last year, maybe just slightly better. Um, and you can credit that to growth and, and systems as well. Uh, but that gives me some confidence that, okay, this is kind of legit, because this is what we expected us to be. And this is what we essentially were in many ways last year when we had the full team. It's just, um, mm-hmm. you know, we had a two-month blip where, for whatever reason, and it's still quite somewhat unclear to me, for whatever reason, Mike Babcock could not get the, the same performance that he... Uh, did previously yeah and and, you know this gets into sort of the more nebulous cultural stuff that does matter and you know we've all heard the stories about mike babcock since he was fired Mm -hmm. that uh certainly seemed to indicate that the way you know he seems like he was tyrannical and you know like he 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 ran his team like a real asshole yeah he does not seem like a fun person to 
have as a coach. Yeah, I, I, I like I think you know like genuinely. That's morally to his credit. I actually hold that against him in terms of my opinion of him as a decent guy, is basically gone. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, okay, let's let's say that you have an absolute hard ass. Scotty Bowman is my idol kind of attitude where it's like, okay, somebody's got to crack the whip. Uh, hockey teams are run differently, all this sort of jazz. Even so, it's like, okay, by that standard, he was not getting the results. Say, like, we're in a results business, okay, that's all that matters. He wasn't doing it any way you measure it by the end there. And, you know, prior to all this stuff coming out, I was still at the point where I was saying, okay, it's time to fire him because he was, for whatever reason, unable to get even the results that he seemed to get previously out of many of the same players. And, you know, maybe that's just he lost the room as much as anything. But, you know, if Sheldon Keefe's great gain is mostly that he's gained the room back for the coaching, that's still a meaningful gain. That's still important. And I am inclined to believe it because this team looks a lot more like they were supposed to, frankly. Yes. So, so yeah. I think we can still probably expect a bit of a come down in the offense. Um, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, mm-hmm. but I don't think many, if any, teams have uh, sustained, you know, a, essentially 2.85, 2.9 expected goals per 60. Um, especially this year, the league offense has come down a little bit, so this is uh, even more impressive than the same raw figure would be in, in, in last year. Um, so mm-hmm. maybe, maybe we can expect some regression there. Um, it's not guaranteed, but I, I would just expect it. Uh, it's just a bit of the plexiglass principle. That said, you know, the Leafs have a lot of room to come down and still be an elite offense and still be, you know, the best offense in the league, especially when you factor in mm-hmm. uh, their shooting talent that they that they have on their roster with uh, Matthews and John Tavares in particular. So... Five on five, I think the story is is very good. The Leafs are kind of what they should be. Um, And, you know, we're not really talking about the tactical stuff. We've done plenty of discussion of that uh, before. But from a numbers perspective, this is what we want to see from the Leafs uh, at five on five. Now, I Mm -hmm. I also want to get your thoughts on kind of the power play and special teams as a whole. Um, How have you seen them under under Keefe? Because once again, the numbers are quite I mean, for... Yeah, they're... They look good. There are times when I look at the power play still, and I'm still frustrated. Maybe my expectations are too high, but it's working better. They look better once they get set up in the opposing zone. Notwithstanding, there was a five-on-three against Calgary that frustrated the hell out of me because it seemed like it was slow setups for one-timers, and that seemed like kind of a waste. However... By and large, you have to say, okay, the power play looks like it's much more like it was supposed to be. The improvement on the penalty kill is really interesting. If that's real, if that's actually like a sustainable thing for us, that's really good. Because I kind of expect us to be a good power play team. We ought to be. The penalty kill, I am impressed if we get really good results out of this group. In the penalty kill. It's not that the you know the Leafs have always had bad penalty kills in the last few years, but you know it's not generally considered a strength of ours. So if we can be, you know, a good to really good uh, five on five team, and if we have strong special teams results, suddenly we're back at the point where we're talking about this team as a real contender, which is a conversation that we really stopped having 
a couple months ago uh, as bad as things got because they didn't look anything like one. I'm not saying they're back there yet, but if those things continue, then, you know, maybe they can be again. Maybe there is a legit path forward again for this team. Yeah, it, I, I I agree with that. Um, the One of the, I guess, maybe not understated, because I think people did realize this and recognize it, but one of the things that made the drop-off and even-strength offense so galling to start the year is that the Leafs didn't have their special teams as a buffer like they did last year, where mm-hmm. their their penalty was like penalty kill was okay, not great, uh, and the power play. When you look at the year on an aggregate, even from a goals perspective, was uh, above average. They had at least some buffer of okay, we can win some games with our special teams, especially early on in the year when the power play, you know, everything was going in. Mm-hmm. Now, um, if they have that buffer again. It means that they can, you can expect some regression in their five v five offense, and you can still have them be a, a very good, even elite team. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that that's critical. Like you, I, I sometimes see our power play, and I'm like, this doesn't feel as dominant as it could be. Um, it still does seem a little too focused on the outside. I feel like Tavares is a bit underused. I feel like. Um, Nylander in the middle is a bit underused. I'm not mm-hmm. sure as a right shot he's the best fit there. But then you I mean you look at the numbers and they're they're very good. And yeah, and you know it, so, it's that's worth, the point of numbers. It's worth stating that yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, they they they, they don't have the biases that my eye test does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's worth stating that. Just um, sorry, what was I going to say? It's worth stating that. One thing that keeps doing, and it's a very easy fix that everyone clamored about for a long time to get a bit more juice out of the power play is, okay, just play your top players a little bit more. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe that's just as much as it is. You know, like, just use your horses. You know, you're paying an awful lot of money for them. You might as well rely on them. I think that there's been a lot of sometimes deserved, sometimes not, uh, kind of victory laps from hockey Twitter because Keith is doing some things that people have been yelling at Babcock to do for a while. And in terms of playing the PP1, even, you know, as, as much as like a year ago, we were all kind of saying, okay, you should probably do more of that. And yeah, it's been encouraging to, uh, to see the team kind of get back to having respectable results in that regard. I don't know uh, in, in terms of like, am I confident that like this is kind of fixed now? Is this like really back to being a top three power play? But I believe based on the personnel, it should be. Like they, they really ought to be this caliber of power play that they've looked more like numbers wise in the last month. So yeah, it, maybe I'm just too keen to buy into all of this stuff because one, it's what I want to believe. But two, it's, it's what I thought the Leafs were. You know, like, this is what I expected coming into the season. And now they look like it again. Um, but I don't see how you can fairly look at the results since Keith's come on and not be encouraged. You know, like, I just I don't think that there's any honest reading of the results other than to say, yep, he's getting it done so far. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with that. Um, and... Someone else who's been getting it done, 
uh, especially recently, in pretty much all areas of this game is Austin Matthews. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, I think last week we kind of we titled our episode, you know, Big John is back. And, and one of the main things we talked about is, look, the Taveras line is back. They're what we think they are. They're back to what we saw last year. We can be relatively confident, especially given how consistent Tavares is, how good Mitch Marner is, and how um, how useful as a third banana Zach Hyman has always proven to be over the course of his career. We can expect that line to be good going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and we needed the Matthews line to just kind of kick it up into high gear and recover the form they had in the early parts of the season when the Tavares line was not as good. And over the past week, notwithstanding uh, the Detroit game where Nylander and Kapanen were benched fairly for, for poor play, mm-hmm. The Matthews line and Matthews in particular has done that, you know, in the last in the last few games. And I don't think this was any shock. We we both said that you know these guys are too good to be down for long. There, there's no reason to think that Matthews, Nylander, uh, and whoever is is not going to be fine. We we did talk about um, the the decline in Matthews' shot quality and um, whether they miss kind of having a natural left winger in Janssen. I think both of those are still very valid discussion points because those haven't changed in three games. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we have to give some props to Matthews himself because he's been, A, putting them in, which is what he's primarily paid to do, and B, I I think it's fair to say his defensive game has improved. Yeah, this is at the point where, you know, it's mostly eye test and stuff like that, but it feels like, and maybe this is just... uh, the compensation for he's not playing as deep in the zone all the time. But we're starting to see him make some positive defensive plays where, by and large, he didn't really do that in the past. And some of that, again, might just be engagement, you know? I I think whatever you think of Mike Babcock, he probably wore pretty thin in terms of his speeches, as most coaches do, by this point in his tenure. Keith might just be able to to get buy-in and maybe one of the positive side effects of all of that sort of, I believe in you, I believe in our talent, we're going to play to our skill, all that good stuff, is that you do get some payback on the other end. You know, Keith is treating Matthews like, okay, you're one of my horses. You're one of the guys I'm relying on to go out and win the game. Uh, this is it. Maybe that does get you more buy-in on the defensive end. Maybe it's just tactical changes make it easier for him to show defensive ability. Maybe it's both. But I don't think I've had almost anything good to say about Matthews defensively for the first few years he's been in the league. And just the fact that we can even remark upon it now is something, is encouraging. Um, I should say, in fairness, he's actually always blocked a surprising number of shots, which I'm not even sure if I like because I'm like, don't get injured, please. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I do think that I've seen a bit of that. You know, I've seen some back checks, some energetic checking, some some of the things that you would hope to see from a center whose game is maturing, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's he's always also been a takeaway artist, yes, right? Yes, of course. And we talked yeah. about this in our pod with, with Katya, where it was weird how he's just, as soon as he loses the puck in the offensive zone, he's like a bull in a china shop. He's like, how dare you take the puck from me? Mm-hmm. Right, like that's mine. I'm I'm about to score. Do you know what you just did? Um, <laughs> and then he can be so lazy in the defensive zone. Um, but and again, this is eye testy. And his stats on the defensive side throughout all of this year have been pretty solid. I don't know if they're particularly better in the last few games. It would be kind of fully foolhardy to read into two to three games uh, as a trend in that, anyways. But 
to the eye, he has looked like he's been more diligent about taking care of stuff in his own zone. Um, the his the, the lead up to his second goal against um, against Buffalo, he made a really really nice defensive play, and then came in late as the trailer. Neander found him, and he just made a beautiful move um, to score. So th- that sort of stuff, it does seem to be improving. And this doesn't mean I think he should win the Selkie, right? I-, <laughs> I think he has improved from bad to around average, maybe a little bit above. Um, mm. Interestingly, if you look at like RAPM, it has him basically uh, straddling average. If you look at isolated threat, it has him as uh, quite good defensively, actually. Um, I feel like I trust RAPM more in this case um, because... I- their expected goals model is a bit more robust than isolated threat, which basically is just based on shot location at all and not shot type or anything like that, or like mm-hmm. any ancillary information like rebounds or whatever. But yeah, I think it it's certainly a positive sign, right? Because when you're as gifted offensively as Matthews, you only need to get to okay defensively before you're one of the best players in the world. Mm-hmm. And Right? Y- so he, you know. if he's getting to that point we're in an amazing spot. Yeah, it's it's almost like it's... I don't want to get carried away because, you know, the wish will be father to the thought on this sort of thing if you let it, but we've always said he has the physical gifts to be good defensively. He's big. He's extremely strong on his skates. He's very good at taking the puck away. When he decides that he wants something on the ice, he tends to get it. And so... All that put together makes you think, okay, this guy really could be a two-way player. And, you know, I remember back right after we drafted him, there was a lot of talk about Matthews becoming kind of like a two-way force. And, you know, talking about his defensive acumen as much as anything. And I remember you wrote an article saying, uh, he's a goal scorer, guys. Let's not sleep on that. And I... I think you've turned out to be pretty obviously right about that. But, yeah, just having any kind of defensive hope for Austin Matthews is very positive for me. You know, I I was almost resigned to accepting he's going to be just like a net strong positive. He'll just outscore his problems. If he can even, yeah, get to average, that's a big thing for us. That's huge. Right, and it's like, and he's not in the same class as Connor McDavid offensively, but Connor McDavid isn't a, a stalwart defensive player, but it doesn't matter because he is in his own galaxy offensively, and the net effect is still such that he's the best player in the world. Yeah. And right? You know, um, the same thing can happen to a lesser degree with Matthews. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's been, been good to see. I, I do wonder, you know, there's a bit of a syndrome for falling in love with a certain type of depth player. It's very easy to do, especially as you've pointed out in the past, when they're uh, you know, running hot PDO-wise. I've really liked Ilya Mikhaev. He's been a lot of fun. Um, just as an all-around player, he already looks to me like he's maybe the best of the many European free agent signings. I mean, Nikita Zaitsev is a whole can of worms, but Mikhaev is really encouraging me. And unlike a lot of those other guys, I'm thinking absolutely we want him back next year. It's just a question of how much. But yeah, he's a bit of a a Kuhlman regen in a lot of ways, isn't he? I wonder why I like him. Yeah, eh? <laughs> but he has. Um, and I guess yeah. 
Sorry, I, I guess it's a bit lazy. You know, I, I want, I hate falling into the trap of, oh, this Russian guy is comparable to this other Russian guy, as if, you know, there aren't similar North American players. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways, he, he, he's like Zach Hyman in that I think he's an elite complementary player. Mm-hmm. Where he can be the third guy on a high-level line. Yeah, you know, he has a huge motor to use the, the hockey term, where it's like the energy level doesn't flag. The effort is always there. The commitment to sort of playing in a solid way is always there. He seems to me like he's forcing his shot a little bit less lately. Maybe it was just, you know, he went into a bit of a goal-scoring slump and he was trying to snap himself out of it. That was really the only thing that I didn't really like about his game. By and large, very favorably impressed with him. Also favorably impressed with Pierre Engvall, although I'm still at the point where I'm trying to figure out what I think Engvall's level is. He's been part of a good third line. And I think that he's putting himself past that kind of random grab bag of AHL, NHL tweeners slash fourth liner sort of guys. Like, mm-hmm. you know, notwithstanding, Timoshov has had a pretty decent week too. But, like, I think Engvall is a cut above Dimitro Timoshov. And I do as well. Guys of that and, ilk. I mean, yeah. Engvall, he was, again, this is the tiniest of tiny sample sizes. But, God, he must be annoying to play against if you're on the power play and he's the penalty killer. He's just aggressive. And he has, I mean, we, we joke that he, he's like 6'5 and, you know, eight feet of that is neck. <laughs> but he also he does have a super long reach he can move pretty well he yeah he's a he's an annoying person to play against um there was a time where he had like i think it might not be true now because there's been a bigger sample size but there was a point where he had like a 67 percent expected goals percentage expected goals percentage when not playing on the pk yeah i mean that was insane <laughs> Uh, that's funny, you know, and it is fun to have, like, a deadly shorthanded threat. You know, we've talked about this in the past with Hyman, Kapanen, what have you. Um, and Marner, of course. Of course. I mean, Mitch Marner. But, uh, yeah, you know, I think that um, for a team that, and, you know, I'm reaching back into the past here because this is really something 10, 15, 20 years ago. But the Leafs were kind of infamous for being not all that great at developing their own players. And especially prior to the advent of the salary cap, they just kind of signed people and, you know, plugged their holes that way. The development on the Marlies has been encouraging, I think, for a lot of players. We've seen a lot of players uh, go through the Marlies system and come in ready to play at a quite respectable level. And I'm thinking Janssen, obviously, is uh, more offensively talented than most of them. But also, you know, Kapanen becoming well-rounded. And then seeing guys like Engvall. Seeing guys like uh, Dermot and Hall, frankly. I do think that that's a testament to an organization that is doing a better job of becoming coherent. Of becoming an organization that builds players for the long term. Um, I actually think that... You know, Kyle Dubas has a decent but mixed record as a GM so far. But I think you can also point back to his time with the Marlies and be pretty solid on what he's managed to do down there, that's for sure. Even beyond just the championship that they obviously won. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, you do have to be careful to like not get carried away 
from this stuff. I mean, I've seen many people be like, oh, you know, Kapanen and Janssen are perhaps made expendable by um, mm. by these younger guys. Or not young, not even necessarily younger, but by these newer guys. And, yeah, I'm hesitant to really agree with that. Um, especially since both of them, I think, have been a little unlucky in different ways this year. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think either of them have had as good a year this year as they did last. With Kapanen... I do cut him some slack where he's had to play at left wing a lot, and it, it's clear that his skill set is just not really suited for that. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, even, forwards are, are more interchangeable than we like to think. We put them in, like, boxes of left wing, right wing, center. And, you know, in practice, especially with the way the Leafs play offensively, they do interchange roles a lot. But with Kapanen in particular, even if you can say Nylander's playing the, the left wing and Kapanen is on the right. I I think he's better suited to not have to play in a role where his teammates are far and away the better players with the puck in the offensive zone because Kapanen is great at getting the puck in the offensive zone and then he's not that great at distributing it when he gets there. Mm -hmm. The magic of Kapanen is like supernatural speed and yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and the thing is like when... The differential between him taking a shot and deferring to Matthews or Nylander is much bigger. And we've talked about this before, that he's a bit of a one-man band. and He almost exists independent of the quality of his line mates to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he, he was also part of an excellent third line with Kerfoot and Mikheyev at one point. right? I, I think that line would be just as good uh, yeah. as the one with Engvall. Uh, and actually better than the one with Engvall uh, if Kapanen was placed there. So I don't think... You want to like jump the gun and say, "Oh, you know, these new guys make the older guys expendable." They might. I just want to see a lot more before I am really confident in that assertion. But you know, more good NHL players is a fun problem to have. Yeah, you know, the thing about Kapanen is he's expendable if you're winning a trade or if you're like getting back a, you know, a meaningful improvement on defense. I guess, like that, you know, you certainly look at that. But there's absolutely no need to rush into it. And I, I agree. I do think he's going to... Opinions on Kapanen seem to swing wildly. I think even we've done a bit of it in the past, but I really notice it online. Like, people, when he's good, he's great, and when, you know, it's not going in for him, he gets very frustrating very quickly. It's like that old Michael McCurdy line about, you know, for a mid-tier forward, a lot of what you're going to remember of them is them not scoring. And I think, you know, Kapanen being in a slump exacerbates that. So right now he's kind of at a low ebb. You know, I'm not averse to looking at trading him if the time comes, but I don't think we need to be in any hurry to do so. And, you know, I'd certainly want to be sure of what I was getting back. Yeah, absolutely. It's also, like, Kapanen probably isn't returning, especially, you know, at a low point in his value, as you said. He's not returning Sparky the Unicorn right deep. Yeah, I mean, come on. So. Yeah. You and know. Norris Johnson. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, they're good players, but I think, you know, I'm accidentally sort of wading into trade speculation here, which I hate, because first of all, the NHL trade market is so unique, you know, it's it's not like, you know, a publicly traded company or something like that, it's like, I'm just going to go out and buy some stock and whatever. It's like, you know, you need to have a right asset, you need to have a GM who's looking to trade that asset, and, you know, it's, it's not 
always the same availability at the same times. And further to that, anytime you suggest a trade, if you're not obviously winning the trade, like half your team's fans are going to be mad at you. So <laughs> that's just kind of how it goes. But, you know, I, I think Kapanen, I could conceive of him returning a good fourth defenseman. But it's very hard for me to imagine him returning a first defenseman of any description, like a top pairing guy. Unless the other GM is, like, very dumb. That's about it. Yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, so, from time to time, Kevin Papetti uh, of PPP and Maple Leafs Hot Stove, uh, and his own podcast, uh, Everything Leafs, I believe uh, it is called, um, he does these, you know, trade proposals on Twitter. And, you know, I, I talk to him about them sometimes, and he, he said that, like, you know, I, I could trade Connor Carrick, uh, back when Connor Carrick was on the team, I could trade Connor Carrick for, like, Hampus Lindholm, and half the people would be like, oh, that, you know, Ducks have to add there. Yeah, <laughs> maybe if you add a second, you know, but uh, yeah, I don't know. So it, it gets kind of crazy. We had, I, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't remember the name, so I can't put anyone on blast, but we had one comment. It's like, does anyone think that if we can add a top pairing defenseman without giving up any of our core pieces, we should do it? It's like, yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, I think we should. Uh, you know, it, it's, it is not as easy as just like go win a trade. That's very hard to do, and even quite good GMs kind of wrestle with that. I also, I do wonder, what is Kyle Dubas thinking trade-wise right at this instant? Is he in any hurry to trade for anybody? I hope he's not, like, totally I think dazzled. I think it's the waiting game, right? Yeah. You had, a, you had a post a few weeks ago that's like, okay, look, the Leafs have 20-something games, essentially, mm-hmm. 28 games or whatever, to kind of assess where they are and then make their decisions with maybe a month and a bit to go before the trade deadline, which is like, I guess, um, puts them at making decisions in mid-January. Yeah, I, I, I cut it closer than that. I said mid-February, but same sort of idea. It's like, right now, he's still on the stage where he can evaluate, but aside from backup goalie, and again, one good start against the Detroit Red Wings does not make Hutchinson a reliable backup, uh, I don't know that there's, like, an obvious opportunity here. You know, obviously you keep your ears open. I have no idea what would become available, but I doubt he's in any kind of hurry. So we may be in a bit of a waiting game. He may just say, right now, it appears like it ain't broke. So I no longer feel much pressure to fix it. Maybe he thinks that Sheldon Keefe is the fix by and large, and I hope he's right. Yeah, that would be that would be wonderful. <laughs> um, okay, so I have a, a bad take to discuss this week um and I, I you don't correct so i can just like go to town on this one go hard okay so from time to time conveniently every time that the matthews dean line goes into a slump that could that lasts more than like six minutes of game time you know, <laughs> I, i'm exaggerating but anytime they go two games without either of them getting a point mm. some schmuck on tsn and sportsnet <laughs> but a lot of the times it's tsn it's like, should we split up Matthews and Nylander? And it's just like, why are we continuing to do this? Why? What is what is the point of switching them? Is the idea that, oh, if you put Matthews with Marner, they're never going to slump again. I mean, never mind that Marner and Tavares had a slump to start the year. Mm-hmm. Like, s- small slumps happen. Unless you're Alex Ovechkin, who has only gone goalless in four straight games, like 10 times in his career, which is just 
ridiculous and unbelievably uh, amazing. Like, unless you're Ovechkin, you're going to go games without scoring. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, just just chill. Just stop trying to break up Matthews and Nylander and put Marner there instead. And this isn't like... The thing that bothers me about this is that, like, I don't really understand... What's the upside? Okay, so now you have to play Nylander and Tavares. Like, I'm sure playing that iteration of things is fine. But it's like, why are you continuing to mess this up? You can make the argument right now that um, that swapping... Uh, that, sorry, or let me rephrase. You can make the argument right now that Marner is playing with a better center than Austin Matthews. Mm-hmm. And you can make the argument right now that... Matthews is playing with a better five-on-five right winger than Mitch Marner. Like, the Leafs' two top two centers and top two right wingers are so close in 5v5 ability that it's really just splitting hairs to be like, oh, we should, like, switch them up. Why are you switching them up? Is it just to see the fantasy of, ooh, let's see Marner and uh, Matthews play together because they're best friends and they're young and it's fun? Which is, mm-hmm. like, sure, that that's that if that's your reason, sure. But, like, make that honest to be, about being your reason. Don't be like, oh, it'll be far better than Matthews' Nylander. Because there's literally no evidence that that's the case. The Nylander thing is so insane at this point. I mean, what do you even say? Yeah. <laughs> and just to provide some evidence here. like We can take as given that Marner and Tavares together are a great combination, right? Like they, yeah. they, they pass the eye test. They pass the numbers test. They seem like a really awesome dynamic duo. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. I, I, I think every Leafs fan would. From last season to this... Right, um, so their entire sample playing together, they have a fifty-four percent Corsi, a fifty-five percent expected goals percentage, a fifty-seven percent goals for percentage. Awesome, really, really, really good numbers. Mm-hmm. Right, this year the Matthews line is a fifty-seven percent Corsi, a sixty-one percent expected goals percentage, and a fifty-seven or sorry, fifty-six percent, um, sorry, fifty-six percent expected goals, sixty-one percent goals per, uh, for percentage. Their numbers are just as good, if not better. Now, look, this is not an apples-to-apples comparison. The Marner uh, grouping typically gets tougher competition and a few more minutes uh, per game. I'm not saying that one group is better than another. But unless you're a moron, (laughs) you cannot possibly look at Matthews and Nylander and be like, that combination is not working. Yeah, well... Because it very clearly is. It's unbelievable. It's a very good duo. So why every time do they after they go through a minor, minor slump, is half the media lining up to be like, oh, let's let's swap that around. There is a really deep sense that William Nylander does not deserve, on a moral level, to be on the first line of the hockey team. And that's how Matthews is interpreted, even though you can, again, argue we have two first lines. And and if, if there is a, a 1A line, it's the Tavares line. Yeah. And, you know, I think you can argue that back and forth. But these people just, like, they don't like him. And so they want him to be punished. Or they want him to be demoted. They want him to not be there. And to some extent, they want to trade him. I think people do go a little far in defending Nylander. Like, you know, there was a much more muted reaction to his benching last night, it seemed like. Because, again, you know, Keefe is still viewed a lot more favorably than Babcock does. Babcock was, excuse me. But, like, the reason that the people who defend Nylander get so heated about it is partly because the amount of bullshit that gets directed his way is nuts. And, you know, like, I I hope we try to stake out some kind of moderate ground here. But to be clear, the pro-Nylander people are a lot closer to being right 
than the Looney Tunes on, you know, Overdrive or whatever it is, who basically just have a go at him because he's an easy punching bag. At this point, it's like, okay, so you don't care how the line actually does. You don't care what any numbers say or anything about, like, how the actual play is going. It's like, even if we're not, like, like even if you're saying, oh, I don't buy shots and expected goals. Well, okay, whatever. They're outscoring their competition by a lot. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, that's the point of the game. And so... Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's just sort of like a, a well of irrationality on this sort of thing. It's nuts. Yeah, and we've talked about this before, but I'm I'm sick of the both sidesing of the Nylander thing. Yeah, one side's a lot more right than the other one. Sorry. Yeah, it, it, it's it's frustrating because you know, people will be like, "Oh, you know, I can see why Nylander is frustrating because he's not a perfect player." And it's like, "No one's a fucking perfect player." <laughs> I can criticize Connor McDavid's defense. Do you think yeah. David Pasternak is good at defense? No, but the thing is, Nylander is the only guy who, no matter what he does, every single time that we have to, we discuss him, the argument of like, oh, you know, he, well, he's not a perfect player. Yes, he's not a perfect player. No one's saying he's a perfect player. But we don't have to continually discuss every single one of his flaws when we're just remarking about the most benign thing of, of him. You can say he had a good game without presenting the foreign against of William Nylander, and the foreign against of William Nylander is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly in the camp of four. Mm-hmm. If you if you think that William Nylander does not help teams win hockey games, then, God, I hope you're running the Habs. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, this should be done. You know, you know, at this point, like, I have to say, and this has been true certainly my entire lifetime, and I'm sure beforehand— this fan base is sure good at finding whipping boys. You know, there's always someone who gets blamed, and often it's a really good player. I remember the amount of garbage that Thomas Caberlet took. I remember even the amount of garbage that Matt Sandin took. And it was dumb then. It's dumb with Nylander. And I bet, you know, long after Nylander has retired and is no longer playing for this franchise, they're all be a lot of people who are like, you know, hey, actually, he was really good. Yeah, he was. And yeah, right now he is, you know? And absolutely, you can have a balanced perspective on him and on his flaws. But yeah, I I do agree with you. Like, it's not even really realistic to just say, okay, here's the four, here's the against. It's like, here's the very strong four, here's the little bit against. You know, it's like, 85-15 85-15 or something <laughs> skewed in favor of four. And so, yeah, it, it does get repetitive, and I don't know. Yeah, it's just we don't need it, to relitigate yeah. his value proposition anytime he does anything. Yeah. And, and so it seems like, you know, half my Twitter is dedicated to doing that in eternity. But it is, you know, it's dumb. He's a and, very good I mean, player, we're contributing to the problem is. here. We absolutely are. We are what we abhor. But... You know, I hope we're at least making a point here that it's like he's good and there's not an argument that he isn't good unless people are being stupid about it. Like, I don't care what a fucking guy with a paper bag avi over his head or whatever it is thinks of William Nylander because that guy's a moron. You know, like we don't have to really invest in that side of the argument anymore because we've been over it. So, yeah. I'm in a bad mood because I'm exactly. sick. 
Well, I guess that's a that's a good note to uh, to end the pod on. So uh, thank you all for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at passionplantprofits.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fuleman. Uh, we'll see you next week.